A little bit of a producer's note on this episode. Uh, our audio for one of our guests uh, was lost about 10 minutes into the episode and we were unable to recover the audio. So I did the best I could to stitch this uh, episode together through the conversation that we had uh, with Jason, Ed, uh, Bennett, myself, in the short amount of time that we were able to recover audio from Cass's recording. So there's times where this conversation is going to sound a little disjointed and unconnected. Uh, as producer and editor of the podcast, I'm going to do the best job I can to make this episode informative and also that way there's context for what's being said. So if there's times where uh, it feels like the conversation is diverted or changed, uh, it's probably due to input from Cass that has directed the conversation in a new direction that unfortunately we were unable to get his audio recovered to be able to put on this episode. Uh, however, there's topics and things that discussed in this episode that we felt that were important for our listeners to hear. So please do enjoy the episode and do keep in mind, uh, there are going to be moments in this episode where there will be dead air uh, or slightly strange transitions in conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoy the episode and we will make sure this does not happen again in the future because this was one of the biggest pains in the ass of an episode that I've had to do thus far. Thank you for enjoying the show. And regardless of what Jathan says, this is episode 164, not 163, because we did actually want to have this episode come out for you last week. Um, but instead we tried to recover the, uh, lost audio and weren't unable to do so. So we're going to put this episode out as is. Thank you for listening. Hello friends and enemies. It's episode 163 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan joined by Ed and producer Jeremy as always. We are very happy to have with us two, uh, two great guests, the host of Crypto Critics Corner, a podcast that if you like TMK, you should definitely be listening to so you can get even more crypto pilled um, <laughs> on all that. But uh, we've got Bennett Tomlin and Cass Piancy um, with us today to, to talk and get deeper into all things things crypto. So Ben and Cass, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. Um, so before we get into the discussion, we have to do the obligatory roundtable of um, please disclose any crypto holdings that you have, any NFTs, um, any investments uh, and conflicts of interest. I'll start with you, Ben. I do not own any cryptocurrency or any cryptocurrency companies. I also don't own any NFTs, and my only investments are in uh, index funds and are fully disclosed on my blog. <laughs> and Cass, you yourself, how many bakes do you have? Um, what's your tether <laughs> holdings? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, multi-billion tether holder. No, I, um, I hold no cryptocurrencies. I hold no <laughs> cryptocurrency stock. Uh, I am completely disassociated with any of that. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, not, not, my, not my thing. Well, that's really unfortunate and disappointing to hear, actually, because I've heard that you can't really talk about this stuff unless you own any of it and unless you're like deep in the ecosystem. So I would like to hear your defense for why you think you can talk about this without even deeming to have a wallet or an NFT. <laughs> well, on that on that note, I just wanted to say thank you for having us. It's been a fantastic time and... Uh, that's going to be it. Thank you, guys. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I do, by the way, I do have a hardware wallet. I think Bennett might, too. I don't know. Yeah, we yeah, both no, have hardware wallets. Two. 
Right. Okay. So we've both been involved long enough that we definitely fell down the rabbit hole and at some point in the past did own cryptocurrency. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So just like Cass, I, I've got two hardware wallets. I've owned both Bitcoin and Ethereum at times in the past. I've used Bitcoin to issue other on-chain assets as part of elaborate and expensive practical jokes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, there is... A, there is this tendency in the cryptocurrency community to disregard any commentary from people who don't own cryptocurrency, but there's also a tendency in the cryptocurrency community to disregard criticism from anyone who owns the wrong cryptocurrency, or who used to own your cryptocurrency but no longer does, or really it's just kind of a tendency to disregard anyone who isn't saying exactly what you want to hear. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think that raises a great. I, I should, I should say, I also have a hardware wallet. It's made of leather, and it's where I keep my fiat. That's my hardware <laughs> wallet. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, you raise a really great point, uh, and I mean, this is this is one of the core ironies of of Web three and the crypto uh, community, which you know is always about like decentralization and democratization. Um, and, you know, with that usually is uh, tied along some kind of like anti-expert uh, kind of you know, rhetoric about like, you know, that your know, experts is just another hierarchy, right? It's another gatekeeping um, way to, to keep people out of understanding or interacting in the financial system or the monetary system. But you see the same thing replicated at like a thousandfold um, in the crypto community where it's like the the way that they police the boundaries of authority and expertise um, are so fluid and so impo like so impossible to to keep a hold of, um, it, you know, it, it's it's truly it's truly comical, right? But I think it does actually uh, it creates this like discursive miasma that uh, I think prevents a lot of people from. It makes people second guess themselves, right? Like, do I actually know what I'm talking about? Like, can I do this? And there's all these people telling me that like I don't know what I'm talking about, and I should just listen to them, but also I should do my own research. Um, so you know, I you know, I think it leaves a lot of people really confused as to what what to do and what's happening. Well, and I think what you're getting at there, like, it's not just an attack on expertise. So often, the descriptions and the mechanisms themselves are meant to obscure what's actually happening. Like, to look at any cryptocurrency protocol and figure out, like, where the value is actually being generated and how it's being moved through the protocol requires a lot of effort. And after you've spent a bunch of time going through and trying to dissect that and figure it out, what you eventually come up with is generally a pretty simple transfer of funds from later investors to early investors. But to actually prove that, you need to spend, like in my experience, 80 to 100 hours actually like working through the protocol to figure out till you get to like an adequate level of knowledge about the protocol that people in cryptocurrency will actually listen to what you're saying about it. And so like every step of these structures is meant to kind of obscure and hide the reality of what's going on. Have you in your work come across projects where that's not necessarily the case or there's value generation that comes on maybe because there's a replication of some real world financial process and it just ends up being that the protocol, maybe it's unwieldy, maybe it is hard to parse unless or hard to parse or get through the, the core technical details of how it works, but it's something that is generating wealth or value in a, in a way that's beyond 
old investors to new ones? Yes. I mean, and often even for the ones that are ostensibly close to like the Ponzi nomics, there's a little bit of a mechanism that relies on actual economic value. Like um, Terra and Luna recently collapsed and primarily that was being the growth of it and the desire for people to own it was driven by a massively subsidized 20% interest rate and this frankly unsustainable mechanism. But like at the heart of it, there is this bit of actual value that they use to like seed the entire process because like the Luna token itself is supposed to be able to be staked and collect effectively its portion of the fees and economic value being transacted on this network. And so in theory, there is some amount of intrinsic value to like the Luna token itself. And this is true for many protocols, right? Like you look at MakerDAO and Maker entitles you to a portion of the fees from the creation of vaults for DAI. And so like, arguably, there is a little bit of novel economic value being given to those token holders. The issue with really looking too deep into many of those is that the current price, current value, and like growth in any of these protocols is almost entirely divorced from whatever actual economic engine is driving them. Because there is just such a glut of speculation and frankly gambling that it is extraordinarily difficult to separate out what might actually be a somewhat novel economic mechanism from the increase in price and the speculation on the price that has caused it to grow at such a massive rate well beyond whatever economic engine is actually driving in the background. Yeah, I mean, you know, talking about the the you know the collapse of Terra and Luna, and, and you guys have done great episodes on this. There's been a lot of coverage on it um, in the financial press, so we don't need to get into the the weeds of how that actually happened. But you know, suffice to say, right, it's an algorithmic stablecoin, so it's it's got an algorithm that's meant to keep this peg to a dollar, right? And something happened. Uh, it broke. You know, in the old uh, traditional finance language, you know, it broke the book uh, and it that spiraled down to zero. A lot of people lost a lot of money um, uh, in, a lot, in, in a lot of comical ways too because it was only like months ago um, that, you know, uh, for example, uh, Mike Novogratz, who is a, a big, you know, hedge fund guy turned into a crypto guy, um, had got a huge giant tattoo <laughs> of, of, a moon, of, a, of a wolf howling at the moon saying, I'm a lunatic, you know, Luna forever. Uh, and then months later, Later, Luna uh, does not exist anymore. So, really, really funny shit. Um, but uh, at the, at the, there's something here as well, um, which I think is really interesting that we can get into around like the difference between these the uh, a stable coin um, or a you know, supposed stable coin like like uh, like Luna, uh, like Terra and Luna, right? Um, and and uh, something like Tether. Uh, which is, you know, supposed to be backed, right? It, it's supposed to, it, it derives its ba- value to talk about like that. Where does the value come from? Um, it supposedly derives its value, value from the promise that it has, um, other assets, uh, our, our, you know, our backing tether, um, uh, Let's get into the difference. Could you explain a little bit the difference between these different types of stable coins? And then I would love to get into um, some more specifics about Tether. Uh, like who, what, what, not only what is Tether and what are the supposed promises of Tether, right? Um, 
but like who who is behind Tether? Uh, in particular, I'm thinking you had a really uh, great and hilarious thread on this a few days ago, Bennett. Like just details behind of the people who are like actually behind Tether that are themselves unbelievable, but I think also uh, really you know a, a microcosm for um, the kinds of the kinds of people who are getting into uh, crypto as these like rock star founders and entrepreneurs. Yeah. So uh, first types of stable coins, you mentioned Tether and there's other similar ones like that, that are what I think of as asset backed stable coins. And these would include uh, Binance dollar, Paxos dollar, Circles, USDC. And they're all basically supposed to be a bunch of dollars invested in safe assets backing a dollar pegged token. Among these, there's a bit of variation in what types of assets they invest in and what types of historical issues they may have encountered with Tether having a um, particularly checkered past among their competitors. And that is different than like the classes of more decentralized or crypto native stable coins. And among those, you have like the pure algorithmic stable coins like Terra, where depending on how you define it, it's either backed by nothing or backed by itself. Uh, you have like the partial algorithmic stable coins like Frax, where it's mostly backed by USDC and then partially backed by itself. Then you have like the over-collateralized credit-based models, which would be like MakerDAO, where you're putting up like $150 worth of Ether into a vault so you can get a loan extended of like 100 DAI plus a small interest rate that you pay back at the end. So the DAI stablecoin is a little bit different from like Terra because it is over-collateralized, but is still kind of dependent on cryptocurrency valuation. Now, Tether itself is a challenging history to summarize with quite a few interesting people behind it. Um, one of the child actors who starred in The Mighty Ducks, Brock Pierce, who also has his own checkered past, uh, was one of the co-founders of Tether and also the co-founder of one of the banks that Tether used, which Tether also invested in. Sounds uh, good so far. <laughs> yeah, just just like uh, that's what every company does, right? You just you need a bank, so you go out and you have your co-founder co-found a new bank, and then you buy it because that's how banking works. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. a fucking Gen X fever dream. That's what all of this is. <laughs> and uh, it, it's run by a few other interesting characters. Uh, Juan Carlo Davisini is the chief financial officer of Tether. He was a plastic surgeon for like a week and a half and then was no longer a plastic surgeon and started selling electronics. Uh, their CEO has made no public. Oh yeah. He, he ended up having to settle <laughs> oh, so a lawsuit he's a, with Microsoft. So he's a cool guy. I don't see <laughs> the problem now. <laughs> he's, a, he's a pirate. Yeah. He's a fellow pirate. Yes. Uh, and then, uh, Gene Ludovicus Vanderveld is the CEO of Tether and has made no public appearances in Normal. the entire time he's been the CEO of Tether. You know, just like every other $80 million assets under management fund, you never hear from the CEO. Uh, right. He is the executive director of a Hong Kong-based venture capital firm and also used to work with Juan Carlo Davisini to sell electronics and also sell a product that allegedly would transform the nicotine into cigarettes into vitamins so you could safely smoke 300 of them a day. Um, that was a product the CEO of Tether sold and endorsed 
Yes. Right. It's just, yeah. <laughs> classic guys. Uh, their general counsel is Stuart Hogner, who was the chief of compliance for Xcapsa, the software provider for Ultimate Bet, which famously had a god mode where some players could see other players' cards, which is a bit of an advantage in poker if you're unaware. Yeah, just- but yeah, uh, so Stuart Hogner was the director of compliance for this non-compliant poker software company. Tether is currently suing in New York to keep the name of their chief investment offer, officer Silvano Di Stefano a secret. Whoops. Uh, yeah, so it's this wild collection of crazy people who have, for basically their entire history, very rarely had the backing or the assets they claim to have. They settled with the CFTC a few months ago, and I think the CFTC's conclusion was for like the over two-year period they took a look at, Tether had adequate backing on like a quarter of the days. And so, yeah, this is a, oh, and I forgot the best part. There was a period where them and their sister company, Bitfinex, gave over $1 billion to a company called Crypto Capital Corp. Crypto Capital Corp was run by Reggie Fowler, a former part owner of the Minnesota Vikings, along with Eve Manuel Molina Lee, a Panamanian Canadian, and Ravid and Oz Yosef. They were running this company, Crypto Capital Corp, which allegedly was money laundering for the Colombian cartels. Uh, Ivan Manuel Molina Lee, one of the principals, was arrested in Greece and extradited to Poland on suspicion of money laundering for the cartels and trying to use cryptocurrency exchanges to do it. Bitfinex and Tether gave over $1 billion to this entity, Crypto Capital Corp., and never signed a contract or agreement of any sort. And so when... A whole bunch of these funds were seized in a multinational drug investigation. Bitfinex and Tether both ended up either insolvent or unbacked, depending on which company you're talking about. Oh, my God. (laughs) So hold up. Wait. So you got Crypto Capital Corp. And we are talking to Crypto Critics Corner. And you're telling me we don't know the identity of a lot of these people. (laughs) Right. Is this a scoop? You got something to tell us, Ben and Cass? (laughs) (laughs) I'm... the there are a lot of things to talk about with Tether and Bitfinex as y'all have dived in in the pod. Um, I would love maybe we can talk about you know what what their connection is, and also I think the role that they play in the crypto economy, maybe intentionally when they were first created or what it has evolved to today because as i um at this point they do play integral roles and i'm curious like you know throughout their development was that the intention or is this something that ended up happening for for other reasons or because of what they ended up offering and real quick i want to just underline for listeners as well that like you know tether is you know there is 80 billion dollars of coins out in tether last that i heard yeah, yeah. Okay, it so it's dropped. Uh, it's dropped by a cool ten billion. Very normal behavior because my <laughs> my numbers are only like three days old. So very normal behavior. Um, but you know what that what that means just for listeners is that that supposedly means if everything is above board, which probably not, but if everything is that they have eighty billion dollars of assets backing that eighty billion or seventy billion dollars of assets backing the seventy billion uh, coins, which would make them among one of the world's biggest hedge funds, which would make them one of the largest holders, as they were saying, you know if if this were in u s treasuries 
Yeah, we we've also uh, you know discussing um, some some really brilliant work by Hillary J. Allen. We've also made that distinction or that that comparison with them as a money market mutual fund. Um, but the larger point is is that if they actually hold the assets that they say that they hold to back tether, that would make them not just a little upstart, but among one of the largest holders of these kinds of assets. You know, namely they're claiming it's you know uh, U.S. Treasuries and corporate debt is what they what they claim to have backing tether in large part but they won't disclose it because it's all about their secret sauce it's all proprietary you can't give other um, companies a competitive advantage by giving confidence in you, to your consumers <laughs> yeah yeah uh, and so there's a few different parts there uh, they've been pretty important for a long time um Bitfinex was initially more important than they are now. They were for a long time the largest cryptocurrency exchange. They had relatively liquid spot markets and were one of the first to offer uh, lending and margin products. And so they attracted a lot of attention because of that. And Bitfinex began to grow. For a long time, Tether was kind of a sideshow. Most of 2015 and 2016, it was pretty minor. And, and I think that's true. Like if you go back to the original API for Tether from 2015, which it's still possible to find the documentation for it online, the initial version of that API had an exchange feature where customers could swap their Tether for Bitcoin with no know your customer checks. There was a merchant implementation of Tether to make it easier for, to like integrate it into a point of sale system. Like the original vision of Tether was, uh, meant to be more of like a dollar back token that would integrate more broadly into crypto. And then we get to like 2017 and the really first really major bull run that Tether was a part of. And during this period, we really do start to see Tether grow tremendously. And this gets really complicated because during this era, Bitfinex and Tether were having a lot of banking issues. So in March of 2017, uh, Bitfinex March or early April, Bitfinex and Tether get cut off from their correspondent banking services by Wells Fargo. Yeah, yeah, I forgot, I forgot. That's the that's the hack that they were laundering. Uh, what was it? Four billion dollars worth of Bitcoin yeah, at the time of their arrest. And Coinbase threatened to sue. But we still don't really see Tether's growth really start to take off until the beginning of 2017, when Bitfinex and Tether are both cut off from their correspondent banking services by Wells Fargo and decide to sue Wells Fargo in what their chief strategy officer described as a delaying tactic. So they file this frivolous lawsuit against Wells Fargo and at the time are still claiming, no, Bitfinex and Tether are not the same entity. We just happened to bank together and had this happen to us at the exact same time. So we decided to partner together on this lawsuit against them, you know, like companies do. <laughs> <laughs> and so they uh, sue Wells Fargo, drop it like a week later, assuming Someone must have finally told them it was a bad idea. And from this point on, they really struggle with banking for the next several years. With Tether not having another bank account until September 15th of 2017. And so we have this weird period from like March of 2017 until September of 2017, where ostensibly all of Tether's backing is being held in the bank account of Tether and Bitfinex's general counsel, Stuart Hogner. They had about $60 million just in his bank account at the Bank of Montreal, and Tether grows about $300 million during this period. Allegedly, according to their accounting records as reviewed, these funds were held in the account of Bitfinex. 
But when the New York Attorney General and the CFTC looked at the records for that account from Bitfinex, it received deposits from only two clients, neither of whom ever purchased tethers. And so during this period, there is this extraordinarily weird dynamic where we see tether exploding with ostensibly no backing. And the place where tether claims their backing is doesn't seem to be getting the deposits that would correspond to that. The likely explanation is that Bitfinex, well, one explanation, the good faith explanation is that Bitfinex and Tether were playing some accounting games where they were taking in deposits and withdrawals more and more often through their partner, Crypto Capital Corp, and then using accounting tricks to basically mark those as now owed to the account controlled by Bitfinex. That account owes Crypto Capital Corp. And now, despite that bank account for Bitfinex not receiving deposits from anyone interested in Tether, now it magically holds the Tether dollars. And so they continue to do this until September 15th of 2017, when they finally get a bank account at Noble Bank and Trust, co-founded by Brock Pierce, and in which Digfinex, the parent company of both Bitfinex and Tether, was a major Series A investor. It's an international financial entity, so it's allowed to engage in a bunch of banking activities, but is under a slightly different regulatory framework. Yeah, and so then, then they get banking again, kind of, and that date is also notorious because, and this gets kind of back into what was Tether supposed to be and what was the transition here, is because Tether was always supposed to be audited. Their promise from day one in the white paper on the website, everywhere else, is that Tether will be regularly audited to show that we have the reserves we're supposed to for these tokens in circulation. As of when we're recording this on May 22nd, 2022, Tether has never been audited. Yeah. <laughs> During 2017, Bitfinex and Tether announced that they had both engaged Friedman LLP, a New York-based accounting firm, to do a full financial audit of both firms. On September 15th, 2017, Friedman LLP issued an attestation showing that Tether had more dollars in this bank account than there were Tethers in circulation. The important thing about the timeline here is that on September 14th, Tether had no bank account. On September 15th, they set up a bank account at the bank co-founded by their co-founder that they had just invested in, and then transferred in hundreds of millions of dollars from Bitfinex's account. At 8 p.m. that evening, Friedman checked the account, saw the money was there, and published the report. Very shortly thereafter, a Tether spokesperson was quoted as saying that Friedman would not be completing a full financial audit of Tether because of the excruciatingly detailed procedures they wanted to employ. We have yet to hear an update on the Bitfinex audit, but I think since the last time they mentioned it was 2017, we can safely conclude half a decade later that it's unlikely to appear. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's, hilarious. it's hilarious because yeah, even on the version still on their website, it's plastered with not for public use, internal use only, <laughs> not, not an audit. It's like covered in these warnings. And that was what they posted to the world. And so at this point, it seems pretty clear that Tether is having a lot of difficulty living up to any of their promises. We now know from the CFTC work that they were very rarely backed by cash. When they were backed, it was often by cash equivalents promised future wires that they have yet to receive they would sometimes use as backing for tethers um they were using bitcoin like and so they had already started to diverge pretty strongly from the one dollar of cash in a bank account for every tether and regularly audited promise Zeke Fox's reporting for Bloomberg Businessweek suggests that around this time, Juan Carlo Devasini started approaching John Betts, the CEO of Noble Bank, where they were banking, and other people to try to find ways he could earn additional yield on the Tether reserves. 
And this is where we really kind of see Tether abandon any pretense at their original promise and become more and more like a hedge fund with a sometimes redeemable token worth a dollar, which is not a sustainable structure for Tether and is a lesson Celsius should remember. But that's another story because at this point, like, we start to see Tether invest in stranger and stranger things and do more and more weird financial maneuvering leading up. Uh, and so then early 2018, Noble Bank starts to go under. By summer of 2018, it's basically being sold for scraps. And Bitfinex and Tether start moving their bank accounts to the Bahamas, a small bank called Deltec Bank and Trust, which up until this point had been owned by Isola Capital. Uh, at some point, Isola Capital no longer owned it, and the likely reason is that Digfinex helped them restructure. Um, and so Bitfinex and Tether start banking at Deltec Bank and Trust. Crypto Capital Corp. has now had a whole bunch of the funds seized, and Bitfinex and Tether are effectively insolvent for much of this summer. Uh, Cass and I, at this point, are repeatedly annoying Bitfinex and Tether online by pointing out that on their Reddit, it's full of people who say they can't withdraw and a bunch of people complaining, and that the premium between Bitfinex and every other exchange keeps growing. And so, uh, what ends up happening is Bitfinex, in order to continue to service their withdrawals, starts to take hundreds of millions of dollars out of Tether's account in the summer of 2018 and mark in their records that Tether is now owed funds from the inaccessible funds at Crypto Capital Corp. And so this way, Bitfinex is able to keep their largest clients happy by still allowing them to withdraw and still pretend that Tether is back because, yeah, we'll get those, mon we'll get those funds back from those people we never signed a contract with. They're good for it, I promise. This continues until November 1st of 2018, where, or sorry, October of 2018, where criticism of Bitfinex had reached such a point that they decided they needed to lie and publish a blog post that claimed a few different things. One, it claimed, we are entirely solvent and look at our Bitcoin wallet. We have so many Bitcoins. How could you even think we're not solvent with how many Bitcoins we have? That was the first claim in their article. Their second is withdrawals are working totally fine. Withdrawals have always been working totally fine. And anyone who says withdrawals are not working fine is a liar. This, like the same day or like the day after when Carlo Davisini, the CFO of Bitfinex and Tether, goes on Skype and starts desperately messaging Oz Yosef of Crypto Capital Corp, saying, please, we need any funds you can give us. We can't keep <laughs> delaying withdrawals. If we keep doing this. Bitcoin might crash to a thousand. This is bigger than just us. And so then... <laughs> The next couple of weeks, the criticism keeps getting higher because people, despite Bitfinex's statements, can't actually withdraw. The traders can read the blog post, but when they try to withdraw, they don't get their money and they still recognize that that's a problem. <laughs> and so November 1st of 2018, Deltec Bank and Trust, this bank in the Bahamas they've both been using, publishes a letter saying Tether's portfolio cash value exceeds the numbers of Tether in circulation. This is a new term that none of us following Tether had ever heard before and still don't quite to this day know exactly what they meant. But Deltec claimed that some amount of assets held in some way by Tether were now worth more than the Tethers in circulation. On November 2nd, 2018, Bitfinex took $650 million out of that account. And so... <laughs> And so the Tether was then, again, immediately unbacked. And this continued for the next several months, leading up to the very beginning of 2019, which is when we start to finally learn some of these things. Because towards the end of February of 2019, 
Tether finally changes their terms of service in their website to, instead of saying we'll always be backed by cash, they say we could be backed by cash, cash equivalents, loans, receivables, including from affiliated third parties, horses, or really anything else we want. Um, and then in March of 2019, Bitfinex and Tether enter into what they call an arm's length negotiated revolving credit agreement, where at any time Bitfinex can take about a billion dollars from Tether as long as they pay it, as long as they promise to pay it back with like 6% interest. They call it arm's length and the same executives for both companies sign. Um, just like every great arm's length agreement. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, at this I've point, got one arm doing something <laughs> yeah. and another arm doing something and they are arms linked from each other. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, and so, yeah, at this point they roll the previous transactions into this. They start this new agreement. And like a week later, when Letitia James office at the New York attorney general hears that they entered into this transaction, they file for an injunction, an ex parte order against Bitfinex and Tether to prevent them from doing any more of these transactions. And that's the moment in April of 2019 that a lot of what they had been doing for the past, like 18 months started to become revealed to the public. And it became obvious that Tether had not been doing what they were promising to do for a long time. time. Man, what a what a saga! I mean, and, and so surely all of this has been worked out in the in the next you know three years leading us up to the current day, and and now everything is is actually smooth. So that it was early days, Ben and, and Cass. It was early days, and you know that was the growing pains. It was puberty. Uh, they've they've they you know it's all worked out now. Surely. I think the real miracle here is that is that it still exists. I mean, honestly, that like the the real miracle here is that Tether still exists and there and it hasn't, you know, even though it has flirted with some dips, you know, at the same time as uh, when Terra was crashing, Tether did break the buck, but only down, uh, I think only like, you know, to like 95 cents or something like that, right? Not a whole lot. The other important thing to remember is that Tether was the primary source of liquidity for a ton of exchanges for years. Like Tether and Bitfinex were not the only cryptocurrency companies that struggled to maintain consistent banking. It was a common problem. And for a lot of smaller white label or just international exchanges, you could effectively outsource a lot of that headache to Tether by using Tether as your base pair instead of dollars. And so because of this, there was this period, especially in 2017, 2018, 2019, where it was really common for new exchanges to pop up with Tether as basically their effective dollar pair and no real banking, which allowed a ton of these to proliferate. And as this happened, Tether got integrated into all of them, meaning market makers, trading firms, and other groups that went into arbitrage between those or in interact with those had to become like large holders of Tether. And as Tether got more and more integrated, it became more and more important for the companies, for the trading firms in cryptocurrency to make sure that Tether remained valuable. And so I was talking before about this loan and when it was revealed that Tether was insolvent, they got an effective bailout from the community of about a billion dollars in a few days from just a few of the top firms. 
And, and so like the, the reason that's important is because the collapse of Tether becomes kind of this strange concept. We get into the game theory that the crypto folks love so much because like defecting in this game has potentially risks ending the game for an extended period of time. And so if you want to keep playing and playing the associated games, you need to make sure that this one continues. And so only a few firms can redeem Tether. And these several of these firms have publicly acknowledged that that process is messy, is not as clean as it should be. And so there's this kind of Tether will be protected. Tether needs to be protected because Tether is so useful to so many people. I think this is a really great point here. And, and I mean, in the official designation, right, it's become a, a systemically important financial institution, you know, aka too big to fail. Um, and because if it did fail, it would cause a lot of other cascading failures alongside. Um, and you know, I like I like the way you phrase it ending the game, right? Everybody wants to keep this game going. Everybody needs it to keep going as well. Um, and they need more players to keep getting in, uh, you know, to, to, to create liquidity, to create growth and so on. Um, and yeah, you need that you need something like Tether, the stable coin that's supposed, you know, supposed to be this cornerstone, um, of the market. You need it to keep going. And I think that that raises an interesting point here as well. I want that I wanted to, to talk to you guys about, um, where when, when Terra crashed, there was a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of people like us, people who are kind of professional critics, uh, and analysts of these things. Things, um, there was a lot of kind of dancing in the streets, right? Like this is the harbinger of doom. This is the death knell. Finally, the game has the game is ending, right? Crypto, the crypto ecosystem is collapsing, uh, and you know that's I. I, I uh, um, I, from the very start and all throughout, was like, was I'm skeptical of that, right? Like, no, that's not the case. Like, one bear market, one collapse is not going to cause this whole house of cards to come crashing down. And I think in large part, that's because of exactly what you guys are just laying out here, that it's, it's in the interest of a lot of really wealthy and influential people to ensure that does not happen. Uh, uh, certainly to a degree. Like, we saw between like Abracadabra, the Degen box, and a bunch of other Ethereum protocols that were trying to take advantage of effectively the subsidized anchor yield, integrated Terra in different ways. And a bunch of other Cosmos chains integrated Terra through like Osmosis, which is the bridge slash AMM between different Cosmos chains. But frankly, most Cosmos chains don't matter. Frankly, Terra didn't matter that much in the size of crypto. Almost the entire total value locked on the Terra chain was in this own little self-sustaining game in Anchor, right? It wasn't part of large other actual financial infrastructure, right? And so like, and even like when you look at like the market cap numbers for something like Luna and Terra, they're very deceptive because like you look at the stablecoin Terra, right? And you see 18 billion of them. And so our natural instinct is to, th is to think like, $18 billion of value went in to create those uh, Terra, but that's not really necessarily how it works, right? If you're a VC who buys 
Luna for 18 cents. Luna increases later to $10. You can burn that Luna and get 10 Terra dollars, even though your effective cost basis going into this is 18 cents, right? You're getting $10 out for 18 cents in. And this repeated at a ton of different scales as Luna ran up from its original pre-sale cost of 18 cents up to like $115, right? And so because of this, you see these massive numbers, 40 billion for the Luna market cap, 18 billion for the Terra market cap, $60 billion is an absurd amount of money, like in terms of actual money, but it was never really actual money. There wasn't the liquidity su to support it. There wasn't the demand to support it. Something's missing. Where? Something's missing. I would, you know, that's a, another question I would love to ask you, because I think that when I look at a lot of decentralized finance projects or project or protocols, which are trying to find inventive ways to create a use case for people to stay in the ecosystem. And then eventually one day they, they say they'll scale it up or integrate it into larger processes and everyday life. Um, a lot of it does deal with like really esoteric subsidized Ponzi, Ponzi economic based uh, games or boxes or traps to bring people into, I mean, why, like, has that been a recent development has that been persistent throughout the whole um, history of it? And and what is at this moment, I think, like maybe or seems to be sparking the, the collapse, the unraveling, the disintegration of some of them? No, I, I think you're pointing at something very true there. Like we've seen over the last couple decades, Silicon Valley increasingly recognized that by ignoring regulations, exploiting labor, and subsidizing the initial growth, they can get certain corporations to a size where they become extraordinarily difficult to regulate, deal with, or integrate appropriately into society. And we've seen this across the entire gig economy, basically, sharing economy, whatever you want to call that load of bullshit. Um, and so I think with cryptocurrency, there became this opportunity to kind of take that and make it its most basic form. You're just directly paying people to join the thing you want them to join. You're not just making it so their drive is a lot cheaper than it should be, or their delivery isn't actually reflective of the cost of getting it to them. You're just paying them directly to buy the thing you need to buy them. And so I think they recognize that that became a effective way to incentivize this unsustainable growth. The other part that's been true for at least the last, oh, I don't know, six or seven years in crypto is that there have been a variety of crypto venture capital firms, A16Z being particularly notorious for this, who are able to get in at pre-sales at like massive discounts, say like 90% off what it's initially offered at to the public. And so they are almost immediately massively in the green. They're getting immediate liquidity on these projects. And so they don't care what the project is. They will put the money into basically anything. There was a multi-billion dollar algorithmic stablecoin project that was invested in by A16Z and a variety of other top cryptocurrency firms. I worked through the white paper in the days before it was supposed to be released, and I realized the math in the white paper just didn't... What they claimed the result was wasn't the actual result you got if you did the operation they described. And I pointed it out to their co-founders. They're like, oh yeah, that's not good. <laughs> because like the fundamental math that they were trying to use to market the protocol what? did not work. And nonetheless, is, there was already over a billion dollars in the bonding curve a couple days before release when I noticed this. And like, and this is repeated over and over. I mentioned with Luna, they were able to buy in at 18 cents or 80 cents in the presale, and it peaked at over $115. And 
you'll hear cryptocurrency venture capitalists say, oh, our tokens haven't vested yet. We need to wait six months, a year, two years or whatever for us to get these vests. But they're lying. They're not really lying. They What they're willing to do, and like Chamath has talked about this on like the All In podcast and stuff, is they'll sell their claim to the unvested tokens to other places. So they're still getting the liquidity even before the tokens have vested. And so when you set up the incentives this way, where it is so easy for these firms to extract this wealth, this value from others, they have very little incentive to stop unless there is a sufficiently powerful regulatory or enforcement state to stop them. And that does not exist because our entire regulatory state has been co-opted by these same entities and these same forces. Yeah, and even what Cass is talking about there goes even deeper where they'll use the equity to fundamentally challenge the so-called decentralization of these protocols, right? And so like EOS is a big example of this. They were the largest ICO at the time, raising over $4 billion. But Block One, the company behind it, also sold $1 billion in equity. And the trick here is that Block One, the company behind this all, owned the trademark, owned the licenses, owned all this other stuff. And so the nominal governance control allocated to the tokens is functionally meaningless because if they vote on something that Block One doesn't want to allow the trademark to be used for, Block One doesn't have to. And so by investing by investing in the equity structure behind the so-called decentralized crypto structure, you can maintain your influence and control even as you nominally give the control away to the community. And we saw this a little bit with like Terraform Labs during the Luna and Terra crash and frequently where they would be voting their own supply. And like out of the original supply of Luna, they kept 30% for themselves, sold 26% to venture capitalists and then sold the rest to the community. So at best, the community in the initial ICO was going to have less than the majority of the tokens. And so like these entire structures are set up with kind of the illusion of decentralization, the illusion of control, so that it's possible for the rich, wealthy, and powerful firms to remain those things. Yeah, these are really good points. You know, and we did an episode overviewing, uh, our last episode was overviewing A16Z's uh, state of the state of crypto world, uh, world report or whatever it was, the first inaugural report they did. And one thing they talk about or they try to hammer on hammer home in that report is that uh in web3 uh equity uh via tokens allows for actual equality in terms of governance right because um everyone has a opportunity to work together whereas you just pointed out right that's not usually the case what ends up being the case is you have funds and investors and early backers who get close to a more than a majority share and this and linking that all back together is something we've we I think is like a really good thread and that you both have hit on, you know, venture capital incentives distort whatever the fuck they touch all the time. Right. And to have a technological system, if you're really interested in decentralization, if you're really interested in like a future form of money payments, if you're really interested in like creating some alternative to today's world, it doesn't make sense to let the major financiers be the people who their sole purpose is a return and they don't really give a fuck about whether they're creating something that will collapse in five years, whether something I'll make everything worse in five years, whether something that is a, just a waste of capital resources. 
this all really hits on a lot here as well, which is something that uh, you know I know we all constantly harp on is that you know we live in this uh, you know the model of innovation in society today is a VC model, um, and therefore it has extremely uh, you know corrupted values and incentives baked right into the very beginning of of not only what's made but what's counted as innovation, right? What is described as innovation, um, and I think. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, well, the, the real innovation here is figuring out ways to do um, these kind of like, you know, sometimes complex, sometimes quite straightforward forms of arbitrage and, uh, and financial engineering. And it, I think it's a really great comparison uh, that you guys made here um, between the cryptocurrency uh, and blockchain kind of ecosystems and the gig economy. Um, you know, not only that these are, you know, oftentimes many of the same exact uh, venture capitalists behind each one, you know, the gig economy, that's Web 2.0, right? And now they're disrupting it with Web 3. Um, as we often talk about here on Team K, right? It's many of the same people disrupting themselves. So there's a lot of self-cooing and self-disrupting going on uh, uh, in a very masturbatory way. Um, and uh, But but I think the, ultimately the strategy was always the same. I mean, we saw the same thing with a lot of the sharing economy uh, uh, and you know, back when it was called the sharing economy, that was also back when they were doing things like subsidize, you know, hyper subsidizing the use of the services, hyper subsidizing wages of people working on the services. So Uber could go around and say people are making a a thousand, two thousand, five thousand dollars a week you know, working on this service um, and that, you know, your ride from Manhattan to JFK airport only cost $5 and, and you know, a handshake, right? And it's like, uh, you know, this is all about getting people in, get it, getting people, consumers and workers into the system and, and then now they're dependent on it. Now they're relying on it. Now all of a sudden cities have gone around and said, well, we're not going to fund public transportation because everyone uses Uber and Lyft anyways, or we're going to actually partner with Uber as our official, you know, urban transportation partner. Um, and, and, and so now you have no choice, right? And now the bottom falls out of the economy. And now everybody needs to work on these things to make, uh, you know, try to make rent, try to get some in their mouth every week, right? And and so and it, it worked. It worked massively for them. And it's the same exact strategy we see happening with cryptocurrency, where it's about you know you we're we're paying you to get into the into the system. Um, you are it's guaranteed you're going to make money um, whether you're an investor, a holder, an entrepreneur. We are we A16Z are paying you, and if you falter, we'll bail you out in the way that you, they they did with like Axie infinity for example right and it's but it's the same exact thing and it's all it's not only about creating the market through this subsidizing um uh, it's also about you know changing the regulatory system changing how governance happens so whether it's the you know the regulatory arbitrage of the gig economy whether it's the regulatory arbitrage of the cryptocurrency and but it's not only the arbitrage it, it also just creates um through this like tinkerbell effect of you know people believe hard enough in it and they clap loud enough and it becomes real but it also becomes real 
real at, at the state level. Like, you know, I'm just looking at now, you know, if, uh, last week um, it was reported, you know, the, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that covers Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, you know, made a decision that said that um, the SEC's in-house judgments violates defendants' constitutional rights. In Hell other yeah. words, by a regulatory <laughs> agency doing what regulatory agencies do, which is making decisions and levying fines, that violates people's constitutional rights to due process because that judgment did not go through a criminal or civil court with a jury and a judge and all of that. That means that every decision the SEC has to make or every decision the SEC wants to make has to go through the court system. Um, it cannot just be done in-house, which effectively, I mean, if we didn't already have a crippled regulatory system in the United States, this goes beyond that, right? It shoots it in the heart. Everybody get your unregulated securities out. <laughs> yeah, and let's fucking now go. Is, like, I cannot imagine a worse time. Maybe like 2007 was the only worse time for something for a decision like this to happen to completely undermine the SEC's ability to do anything. And yet, that's where we are, right? That's where we are now. As as someone who lived in both Mississippi and Louisiana, it doesn't surprise me that that happened uh, in that particular court district because there's a lot of those like old good old boy like greasing handshake deals that are happening uh, on all levels of of uh, state all the way down to local municipalities. I mean, anything anything that the, these politicians can feel like is going to make them just a couple extra more bucks are willing to just fuck everybody over in the process. And the past hour of this conversation has just made me think the only thing we really need to do is take these fuckers' monies away from them. It's the only, it's the only way we're going to rid, rid ourselves of this. Is that if they have money that they can keep pump, pumping into the shit to make more money for themselves. If they don't have it, they can't do it. You can't gamble if you ain't got the chips. I also want to add, just because you mentioned like the goal is to kind of get to a size where they're inconvenient for the state, is whenever you're talking about these kind of things, it's hard for me not to come back to Peter Thiel and his particular brand of evil. Because like his entire writings in like zero to one is that you want to identify areas where you can go to be a monopoly and by doing so exert this kind of like absurd pricing power and ability to lean against labor and against the state and against all these things. And so like you see that, as we mentioned in the sharing economy, where the goal was to basically subsidize Uber, Airbnb, whatever, to such a size that eventually they would be able, they'd become the official partner and they can charge whatever they have to because they're the official partner. You've got no other choices now. And you see kind of that same thing in cryptocurrency where many of the pitches rely on like this network effect, the idea that eventually this will grow large enough, it'll be unavoidable. And that is like the best faith version of what you can create of like what Terra and Luna was trying to do. Like if you're trying to give them the maximum benefit of the doubt and say they were not running just an outright Ponzi scheme, what they were trying to do was subsidize this system for long enough that it would get large enough that everyone would have to keep it alive because the consequences of it dying would be so bad. And so like that idea has clearly gone through Silicon Valley and has become like fundamental to a lot of cryptocurrency valuation pitches with the idea being we can get big enough that regulators won't be able to tell us what to do. Labor won't be able to tell us what to do. And even consumers won't be able to really tell us what to do because they'll have no other choices left. And that's kind of the like stated or at least implicit end goal of a lot of these systems. 
I mean, the, 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 the bad thing is though, is that I don't, if I were in their shoes, I don't see anything wrong with that strategy. It seems to work extremely well, right? And a lot of people make a lot of money. Yeah, I've seen no, that form the like the backbone of a lot of the Bitcoin maxi critiques of uh, Ethereum, right? That Ethereum, its smart contracts, the protocols that emerge on it and, have, and are most popular are just serving as building blocks for another financial system, which looks almost exactly like the previous one, except that there are new players involved. Well, in a lot of instances, there are new players involved, right? But institutions are still getting involved and, and have developed their own infrastructures or desks their teams dedicated to also bringing on their own sort of blockchain technologies, right? So it just ends up, you know, like you were saying, looking like the same mess that people were railing against 10 years ago and that all of this technology was ostensibly supposed to push against or at least offer an avenue or crack in the door for people to figure out a way around. Yeah, I mean, I think th this starts looping us back around to the beginning as well, where, you know, one of the, one of the most... You know, I think there's two two bad options of, of of how something like Tether could shake out, right? You know, if it were to crash, right? Maybe it could just actually be stable and just keep going, riding off into the sunset um, from here on out. I doubt it, but if it were to actually crash, there's kind of two options. It seems like one is that they're lying, that they're that it's not actually backed by financial assets and it's not as integrated into the real economy as they claim. Um, and so if it were to crash, then it might cause a lot of uh, collateral damage in the crypto economy and a lot of people who would try to redeem their tether, um, you know, a classic bank run would be left with with nothing, right? Um, and and so th I think that's one outcome here is they've they've just been lying to everybody. It's a massive fraud on consumers. Um, they're not actually backed. So then, if they're called on it through a, a, a mass redemption, um, then the people trying to redeem are left with nothing. Um, but it's 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 pretty contained. Might tank a big part of the crypto economy, but that's it. The other side is if they're actually telling the truth and they are backed and they are like deeply integrated into the financial system in terms of corporate debt and U.S. treasuries and other assets tied to the real economy, um, and there's a run, then that sparks a fire sale. It causes mass depression across the, um, across the the, the traditional financial markets, uh, you know, and now now all of a sudden there's a lot of collateral damage and a lot of contagion that spreads from the crypto economy to the real economy, um, and that seems even worse, right? It seems like the best case scenario is that there it's a fraud. Um, the worst case scenario is that they're telling the truth. We've been talking a lot about stable coins because obviously it's like the big thing right now. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on on that, but also I wanted to ask you to a question. Maybe we can kind of start ending on this: is what you know beyond stable coins, which you know, as I said, we've been speaking, we've been focusing a lot of this episode on. Is that the most important or interesting or critical issue right now in crypto to your guys' minds? Or is it something else that maybe isn't getting as much attention and should be focused on more? Maybe something that is uh, you know, much more insidious and, and, and much more dangerous. Like, What is to you the most important issue in, in crypto right now? Something's missing. 
So I'll add, I think that Cass is right that plausibly one way it dies is quietly with interest moving to other places until it's no longer such a systemic threat. I think that's pretty unlikely. And I think that the last time we saw Tether redeem a meaningful portion of its market cap like this was in 2018. It was shortly after they'd had a bunch of the Crypto Capital Corp accounts seized and no longer had access. And so they ha- they ended up with about $850 million seized. They burned 700 million tethers and were like, look at clearly we're solvent. We're burning all these tethers. Um, and so I'm, I'm less convinced that any movement we're seeing between tether and other coins is organic or natural. Um, but it is certainly a possibility that they would just quietly peter out. More broadly, I think the... I think there's several big issues in crypto. I think stable coins are arguably the most important because they are the default source of liquidity for a lot of exchanges because they are, they seem pretty clearly to me to be frequently running afoul of banking regulations and because of the economic power they control over chain, chains and stuff. So like, because stable coins are such a base part of so many DeFi systems, they end up basically making it so that the stable coin issuer gets to pick which chain wins in a fork, right? Like imagine that Ethereum is forking and Circle says that's the one that our tokens are going to have value on. That one, our tokens do not have value on. And they have to pick one because they don't have twice the funds. They can't give both the value. And so they pick whichever chain wins. And then every protocol that has USDC as an integral part of it now has to go to that chain. And any protocol that depends on a protocol that involves USDC has to go to that chain. And so we've ended up in this situation where the amount of economic power controlled by these centralized stablecoins effectively gives them this ability to dictate which chain is the valid chain. And so these stablecoins are the primary source of liquidity. They are this foundational aspect for so many of these systems, and they effectively end any narrative of decentralization or censorship resistance around these. Now, there's other very major issues in cryptocurrency. We don't have a cogent regulatory framework for how to handle these exchanges. We're not treating a lot of these which are ostensibly unregulated securities as unregulated securities, and we are far from where we should be on the consumer protection angle, with many noted people basically encouraging retail to invest in these outright Ponzi schemes. A Y Combinator 2022 company, Stable Gains, had over $40 million of their customer funds in Terra. And they had been advertising it as basically there is very little risk of a DPEG here. And when it happened, they changed their terms of service and then bought back a whole bunch of Terra when it was way below peg at like 10 cents and said, we're going to pay you back with this instead of the dollars you gave us. And so like, we're we're at a point where this Y Combinator, a 16Z supported company, can go out and take their customer funds, put them straight into a Ponzi, and when the Ponzi collapsed, just say, well, we're going to give you the Ponzi tokens instead of your dollars. And that's just a thing that's happening. I think that stablecoins in terms of cryptocurrency are foundationally important because right now they basically control cryptocurrency. I think that Our lack of regulation on exchanges has allowed some incredibly bad behavior to proliferate. At one point, Coinbase, which markets itself as one of the safest and most regulated exchanges, had over 99% of the trades on one of their pairs was wash trading, was not valid trading. And that's, that's Coinbase. That's the one that's trying to market itself as better than these alternatives. And then on the consumer protection angle, 
the nationals were in a partnership with a fucking Ponzi scheme. Like (laughs) there's there's clearly something amiss in the way we're handling and dealing with these types of products and what types of disclosures and marketing should be allowed around them. Unfortunately, I think all of us are, are going to be in a job for a while in terms of uh, analyzing and, and keeping track of this stuff. Um, you know, much to our chagrin. This this has been great. This this has been a really great discussion. I want to thank you both, Bennett and Cass, for coming on, uh, for talking us through this, getting a better understanding of stable coins as we've been doing for this episode and as you just laid out. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really important. And it's interesting as well because I think... A lot of for a lot of people, stable stable coins was not. I mean, by by marketing, if not by design, the like sexy topic, right? It was like, what's happening in Bitcoin? What's happening in Dogecoin, right? Like, you know, what are the shit coins? Uh, you know, you know that to me, I think a lot of people still look at, uh, still think of Bitcoin as like, you know, the hallmark cryptocurrency, right? You've, this is the Bitcoin maximalist, the people like the Ma- Michael Saylors and the Winklevoss twins and, you know, all of them. And and I think uh, it's another interesting example of drawing attention away from like this whole much like wider world of crypto, but also this thing, this like time bomb that's just been slowly ticking underneath the surface of, of stable coins. And, and because of the, the Terra death spiral has only just made people realize like, oh, th- this, this is, uh, this is something really, you know, interesting. I think one, one financial, uh, one, um, crypto trader in the financial times called Terra a, a wake up call, um, that these things could go to zero, right? As if it was like, uh, you know, that, that's how they're treating it, right? They're not treating it as something systemic. They're treating it as like an anomaly. Um, and they're also treating it as like, a well, you know, it, it, you should know that it's not always going to be guaranteed 20% returns. Like things could go to zero. Um, as if this, this is such an alien idea to them that they had to say like, Hey, who who could have thought? You know, you buyer beware. There's a lot more attention here to be paid to stable coins. I I did want to actually ask that one last question before I let you guys go and 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 do all your plugs. Um, but uh, what what do you think? You know, setting aside as much as we might try to the uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals decision, which will itself be appealed. So there's, you know, it's not guaranteed that like this is now going to be the law of the land, but it's possible um, for, for for you know federally. But what is the what is the regulatory and state response to? crypto and to stable coins, if there is one at all. Um, you know, there's obviously Biden has, you know, um, made this something of a, of a, of a focus of interest, but there is also a lot of bipartisan support for crypto, um, in the U S Congress and legislators. Yeah. That last question in terms of thinking about like what comes next, we know what the problem is, or we know where a problem is. Do we know where a solution is or where some, some, uh, restraints are coming from, if at all? So I think that there've been several proposals 
put forward forward so far that seek to regulate stable coins. And almost all of them try to move it to differing respects into the banking framework, whether it's under OCC supervision, Fed supervision, or Treasury supervision, or some shared version of the three of those. The majority of the proposals for how to regulate stable coins seem to bring them appropriately, in my opinion, into the banking framework. And I think that's a good start. And I think the stablecoin companies are aware that's where it's going. That's why Paxos went out and bought a bank charter, and that's why Circle has supposedly been trying to get a bank charter, because I think they recognize that that's where the puck is going. Um, more broadly, the SEC has certain powers they've so far been reticent to use. Um, many of these tokens, I think, can easily be constructed as unregistered securities, and by going after more of them, you might be able to slow it down. But that kind of whack-a-mole enforcement is always going to be challenging. And so I think the more reasonable course for them is to really start putting pressure on the exchanges, right? Force them to have some kind of disclosure requirements, force them to have some kind of listing requirements, and really make it so that they are limited in what and how they can market to consumers, right? Because like FTX, Sam Bankman Freed's exchange, who famously said that Luna was a scheme that was transparently going to falter, was basically advertising on their description of Luna and Terra on FTX exchange that you can always exchange one Terra for Luna, which was never true. That fundamentally misunderstands how the protocol actually works and even how the market module was designed. But no one actually cares how these are designed or how these are marketed. And so leaning on that can help us at least limit some of the harm, I think. And I think the third and final piece is that the SEC has a whole bunch of tools to go after people doing uh, illegal and undisclosed promotion of securities. And I think they've been reticent to use those. They went after Floyd Mayweather and a couple of other major promoters, but there are a ton of individuals who have been doing undisclosed and illegal shills of securities. And I think if you start to pressure them and start to limit the promotion of them, you can start to kind of reduce the harm. Yeah, sort sort of cracking down on this affinity fraud that they've been exactly. that they've been taking advantage of by leveraging celebrity or public platforms to say, well, this is um, you know, my nephew showed me this really cool thing uh, that I have five hundred thousand of, um, but uh, yeah, go invest in it. It'd be really nice. Do you think? Um, I'm also curious. Do you think there are reasons for the reticence at the SEC? You know. I, I will add that like my description is what I think regulators should do, not what I think we have the political will or desire to actually do. And that gets back into, I think that like between the revolving door between our regulators and private industry, we have basically completely co-opted the regulators. And that with the loosening rules on campaign finance, we've made it easier and easier for the companies to help prevent any kind of political will from being built up in Congress to change any of that in a meaningful way. And so while I am aware that the SEC has these tools and could be doing these things, I don't expect it to happen unless there's a devastating crash. Because Cass is right. Historically, their role has almost always been to come in after the crash and say, ah, with hindsight, we know exactly what happened here. They're not the ones who find the things. They're not the ones who expose the things. They come in after a whole bunch of people have been brutally hurt by these schemes and then say, here we go. We know what happened. Yeah. The most recent example of this being the SPACs, right? Like about mm -hmm. a, about six months after the SPAC bubble burst, they said, oh, 
you, uh, SPACs, uh, that's a sketchy way to take your company public and you're making, <laughs> you're making statements about financial projections, which are, would be illegal. Uh, so we're going to put in some restrictions. And, and what's funny is those Chinese reverse mergers are basically the same structure as a SPAC, right? Yeah. Find some pointless already listed public thing and merge the other thing into it. It's it's the same thing. <laughs> That's no innovation, baby. Um, we, we have talked about, uh, actually in a major SPAC episode, um, where we looked at Clover Health, one of Chamath Palapatia's uh, you know, SPACs, we, we've talked about the extensive role of, of groups like Hindenburg Research, which is an investment research firm and activist short seller. And, and they really are the, like, the, the sheriffs in these wild west towns that are trying to, to, to mete out some justice in the only way that they can by releasing you know, big research reports and short selling uh, these firms, right? Because like that's, that is effectively the only regulation we have. I mean, there is the, there's the revolving door, there's the campaign financing. I'm based in Australia actually. And, you know, I, I, I keep track of how things are going here. Um, and, you know, but, but also, you know, you read the, the, the like Senate inquiry reports on, on FinTech, which there was one a, a, a year, about a year and a half ago here in Australia. I constantly keep watch of, what um, our regulatory agencies, um, our ASIC, which is like our SEC and um, APRA, our Prudential Regulatory Authority, that makes sure that like banks and financial institutions and insurance companies are prudential. I, I you know, are they sustainable? Are they operating uh, you know fiscally sustainably? And you look at their statements, and you look at these like fin uh, like the Senate inquiries, and it's not only this reticence of like we're the janitors that come in after the fact and we don't know what's happening and this podcast episode is going to get scrubbed by the internet or, or get scrubbed by them off the internet when the crash occurs so they can be like nobody knew nobody talked about this right like um but it is also this there's an aspect of uh this is the this is like the one and only like economic engine in society right now look at how much it's growing look at how fast it's growing look at how much value it's generating um, and and we don't. Why would we want to pump the brakes on this economic engine? Um, why would we want to pump the brakes on, for example, Australia has the most um, buy now pay later companies on our stock exchange than any other uh, security exchange in the world? Um, and and but why, right? Like I mean, these are companies with multi billion dollar valuations. That's value in the economy. You you don't want to stop that. This gets at the whole like magic imaginariness of all of this, where like the market caps don't mean market caps, right? And it is all about like it is a redistribution engine, is what it is, um, not a not a, a value creation engine. But it, it's a it's a hard it's a hard uh, tone to end on, and one that we we end a lot of episodes of TMK on, which is this like, <laughs> well, we've just laid out well, everything <laughs> for you, um, and we've also laid out why things are not changing. And why things haven't changed, and why things are unlikely to change. So, anyways, go forth with this new knowledge you have, uh, and have a better understanding of uh, uh, why everything is shit. <laughs> knowledge is uh, power, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry. Knowledge is power. He says very weakly and questioningly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
utilitor emptor, right? User beware. Um, don't don't you know? Don't be a buyer. Don't be a user um, of of this stuff. Is really like that's kind of the point that we're at right now in terms of what what you can do is but is just not do stuff, um, much as people try to get you to. So, but what you can do and what you should do is listen to Crypto Critics Corner. Uh, it's a wonderful podcast that goes. Uh, uh, as as you've just witnessed firsthand, Bennett and Cass are extremely knowledgeable um, on all of this. Really interesting, really informative, um, and and there is just such a, a a much broader and deeper crypto ecosystem than you know we we discuss on TMK. We uh, in a lot of ways are only scratching the surface, and Bennett and Cass are getting really deep down in the muck. Um, so please tell the tell the people where they can find you um, and where they can listen to your podcast. Uh, let's start with you, Bennett. Any, any plugs you would like to, to give? Sure. So um, I'm Bennett. I'm at Bennett Tomlin on Twitter. My newsletter is The FUD Letter at thefudletter.com. And both Cass and I are hosts of Crypto Critics Corner, which you can find on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or just about any other place that'll let you toss an RSS feed in there. Something's missing. Something's missing. And Cass and I, we should probably mention, Cass and I do have a second podcast with Protos called Innovated about a blockchain smart city in the desert. So if that sounds like an interesting concept to you, check that That's one out. How, I'm going to check that out because yeah, I, I love, uh, I love uh, when... People try to make cities in the desert. Neom, you know, one of my favorite cities that will never get made. I love uh, cities on the blockchain. Apes guarantee citizenship. <laughs> Apes guarantee citizenship. <laughs> All right. Well, we will definitely have to have you back on to, to give us the rundown on the blockchain city. That was a topic I wanted to get us to in this episode, but it was just way too much. So it's a, a future episode. Absolutely. But in the meantime, yes, go listen to Innovated. Check out that series. I know Ed, Jeremy, and I will definitely be doing so. That's That sounds right right up our alley. Um, thank you. And you, dear listeners, thank you as well. Uh, you can find us on patreon.com slash this machine kills, um, where you can get another episode every single week running down these kinds of topics. Um, our last uh, premium episode is a great companion piece to this one where, as Ed mentioned earlier, we went through really in depth on uh, A16Z's inaugural state of crypto report. Um, and and, and really spent a lot of time cracking our brains, actually giving it more time and attention than uh, than even the people who made the report. So, <laughs> <laughs> so find us there on Patreon.com. Uh, and until next time, see ya. Adios.
Bitch. 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 Bitch.